You are listening to the Martin Luther Sermon Podcast, and this is Luther's Sermon on the Text, John 16, verses 16 to 23, preached on Jubilate, that is the third Sunday after Easter Sunday. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. For more information on the Luther Sermon Podcast or to hear more Luther sermons, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. This sermon is from Luther's House Postal, reading from a translation published by J.A. Schulze Publisher in Columbus, Ohio in 1884, a text and translation that is in the public domain. First, the Gospel lesson, John 16, 16-23. Jesus says, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me, and because I go to the Father. They said therefore, What is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and said unto them, Do you inquire among yourselves that I said a little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come, but as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. So far the Gospel. Luther's Sermon. Our text is a portion of those parting words which Christ addressed to his disciples while he was seated with them at the table in the evening before his betrayal by Judas into the hands of the Jews. He wished the disciples to understand their duty and to regulate their actions accordingly after their master would be given over into the hands of his enemies, and therefore tells them that, although they would be sad and would mourn at the event, they should yet be comforted inasmuch as the separation would not be of long duration, and that they should see him again in a little while after he has arisen from the dead, and that then their joy would be an everlasting one. John tells us further how the disciples were puzzled at these expressions of Jesus, for they could not comprehend what he meant by the words, a little while, nor did they understand their meaning after Christ had explained it to them. The same perplexity controls us in this regard. We cannot rightly apprehend this little while, for the very same obstacle which prevented the disciples from understanding these words lies before us and dims our vision. When tribulation came, and when the disciples saw the horrible and pitiable death of their master, they could not realize that this was to be but for a little while. They thought that this was the end of their Lord and of his work, and expected nothing else than persecution, suffering, and death, even as it had happened to their master. They were far from believing that after two days their Lord would arise from the dead to an endless life and would be their Redeemer from sin, death, and hell and give them finally everlasting life. Hence it happened to them, as St. John elsewhere relates, that on Easter they were gathered together with closed doors for fear of the Jews and would not at all credit the report of Christ's resurrection, although the women, Peter, and the other two disciples had seen him. They were entirely incredulous 
as to the little while of this occurrence. They thought Christ would have to remain in death as other men, that this caused their great sorrow, else they would have cheerfully awaited his resurrection and would have been comforted. We act repeatedly as the disciples do here. As soon as God permits a misfortune to befall us, we despond and think that there is no remedy nor rescue possible from its weight. We are not prepared to exclaim or believe that after a little while God will mercifully and unexpectedly come to our assistance and are therefore hopeless, fit only for complaint and lamentation. In this we err. For St. Paul says that we ought to rejoice in tribulation and be bold, both on account of the present help, which will surely come if we but believe the word, and because tribulation is a certain trial by which we may know that we are God's children. Of this we shall treat further on. Our text is therefore full of comfort, not only for the disciples, but for all Christians. They are exhorted to learn the meaning of the words modicum, which means a little while, that they may apply it as a remedy in tribulation, knowing the truth of their comfortable assurance that the troubles shall last but for a little while, after which sorrow will pass away and joy and gladness take its place. For the purpose of comprehending this consolation the better, we will now speak in general of crosses and sorrows. Our reason assumes that God, if he cared for us and loved us, would ward off all evil from us, whereas now troubles and miseries crowd in upon us from every side. Hence the conclusion is that God has either forgotten us or else he has become our enemy and cares no longer for us. For surely, if it were otherwise, he would deliver us from our grief and distress. But such thoughts are wicked, and since they are very apt to arise, we must guard against them by applying the word in true faith and by following its precepts and not our own thoughts. If we judge our experiences in daily life aside from the light of the word of God cast upon them, we shall inevitably become victims of error. What says the word in this connection? Not even a single hair shall fall from our head against the will of God. If we accept this declaration in earnest faith, we will conclude that neither the devil nor the world, no matter how powerful they are, can harm the Christian in the least if it is not God's will that they should do so. Christ makes this plain in the parable of the sparrows. These are really useless birds which do more injury than good, and yet not one of them shall fall to the ground and perish unless it be the will of the Father in heaven. Matthew 10. Now, if we have any confidence whatever in the words of Jesus, we must conclude from this that God will certainly concern himself much rather for men than for many sparrows. He therefore will guard them well and will not permit the devil and the world to harm a single one of his Christians against his will. If troubles do come, we infer that God has first given his consent, for against his knowledge they could not arise. Let us well remember this truth, so that we do not think when evils surround us that we are forsaken of God, for he has not forgotten where we are, nor is he ignorant of our condition, though he permits sorrows to invest us. Another still more dangerous thought arises frequently under such circumstances. We are prone to say, If the sufferings which we endure are providential, then surely God cannot be our friend. For if he were, he would not permit this misery to visit us, but would ward it off and make us happy and prosperous. Then comes the conscience, in addition, 
with its accusations of our sins and misdoings, so that our condition becomes nearly desperate, and we are not far from hatred towards God and turn away from Him to seek help somewhere else where we are forbidden to go. We would more patiently bear our misfortune and would regard it less burdensome if the devil and wicked men had brought it upon us. Let us then hold firmly to God's word and resist these subtle insinuations and arguments of our natural man. If we do not, we shall either fall victims to despair or become open enemies of God. What says God's word in regard to this? St. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 11, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. These words are plain. God chastens and disciplines those whom he would bring into eternal life. They suffer many severe trials of sorrow and pain, of misfortunes and tribulations, yet God is their friend. Let us not forget these words of the Apostle. We all have our griefs and pains if we candidly ask ourselves, Has this tribulation not come upon me? Would I not have fallen into some other calamity or sin? And is it not better thus when God by these trials keeps me in faith and brings me to his word and keeps me at prayer? I say, if we candidly look at our experience in this light, we shall surely find that God is not our enemy, even if he smites us, but that he in reality manifests his love toward us and would by this discipline keep us from eternal misery. In this sense does Paul, in his epistle to the Hebrews, cite the expression of Solomon, Proverbs 3. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards, and not sons. And in the same connection, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits, and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit." that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. These passages teach us that the stripes which are inflicted on us by the hand of God are prompted by his paternal love and not by his wrath. If, therefore, we feel the infliction let us not suppose that God is angry with us or that he cares not for us. He disciplines us because we are children, that we may not fall short of the inheritance which he has in store for us. This lesson concerning the purpose of sorrows and sufferings, which the Word teaches us, we also learn from facts and examples. Surely no one would have the presumption to assert that God Almighty, the Father in heaven, did not love his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and yet when we view his life and death, if we were to judge from mere external appearances, we would have to say that no love of the Father is manifest there, that he is hostile and cruel toward his Son and punishes him with utter severity, while the wicked Jews intent on malicious actions are spared. It is as Isaiah says, 
yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And the Jews in mockery said to him when he was crucified, If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. If God thus willed it with his Son on earth, we need not wonder if the Christians have a similar experience. Christ says, The servant is not above his master. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And in the epistle to the Hebrews, the apostle says very appropriately, But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Thus we see how scripture and examples fully agree in this regard, wherefore we ought to recognize in our sorrows and sufferings God's good and gracious will, and not for a moment think that he has forsaken us. Our tribulation should become unto us a sure testimonial of the love of God to us, because we are assured by such visitations of our Father in heaven that we are his dearly beloved children. Let us now consider the reason why God thus seemingly unmercifully chastises his children and keeps them smarting under the rod. St. Paul mentions the reason when he says, But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Likewise, we read Psalm 119, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. And Isaiah says in the 28th chapter, Vexatio dat intellectium. It shall be a vexation only to understand the report. We must admit that if God gave us everything we desired, if he warded off all misfortune from us, we would become so secure that we would not be troubled by our sins, nor would we think of God's word and prayer. But when we are visited by, by various adversities, we have occasion to resort to prayer and to call to mind how our sins have richly merited such chastisement, and we will thereby be prompted to an amendment of our conduct and to an earnest supplication that the affliction may be removed or moderated. This is the meaning of the words, But our Father in heaven chastised us for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, if the Christian is afflicted, he ought not to indulge in effeminate complaints and lamentations, but should remember that he has a merciful God in heaven who has not forsaken him nor any of his children, who sends these trials and sorrows as reminder, reminders of man's trespasses and as a call to repentance and to a more faithful obedience and filial love. If we are thus disposed, our sorrows will be our gain, and we will be patient under them. Nothing can then move us to become fretful or to seek forbidden remedies. We will quietly await the help of God and pray for it. Another lesson we must learn. If we know that no evil can befall us against the good and gracious will of God, we must also know and believe that he will find a rescue from our tribulation and will furnish present assistance. This consolation is fitly expressed by the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. In full accord with this is the modicum, a little while, of our text. Ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy, yea, into a joy which is everlasting. There are two prominent reasons why our faith in regard to this little while is often wanting or weak. We are apt to regard the affliction when upon us as too severe and are ready to succumb to it. 
Thus, when the chief marshal of the king of Assyria demanded the surrender of Jerusalem, Hezekiah sent to the prophet Isaiah this message, This day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and of blasphemy, for the children are come to the birth, and there is not enough strength to bring forth. The same figure of speech is used by our Lord in the text when he speaks of the woman in travail. Apparently there is no help. Mother and child must die. Thus the tribulations of the Christians are not insignificant nor easy to be borne, as we learn from the 69th Psalm, where Christ himself exclaims in agony, Save me, O God, from the waters are come into my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. The second reason why we are so desponding is contained in our inability to discover ways and means of escape from our miseries. We are quick to conclude that there is no help possible. We refuse to believe that the troubles will last but a little while. To encourage us in this despondency, the Lord adduces in our gospel the example of the woman in travail. When we view her in her distress, it seems that there is no help for her. She must perish. But in a moment all is changed. Instead of death, a twofold life succeeds. The mother is convalescent, and a bright, healthy child is born into the world. All sorrow vanishes, and rapturous joy ensues. Of this we have examples every day. For fatal results at childbirth, though now and then occurring, are nevertheless not frequent. Generally, great happiness quickly succeeds pain and suffering, as Christ here says. This lesson we ought to lay to heart, for this purpose the Lord taught it to his disciples. When sorrows, tribulations, and afflictions come, let us call to mind that they will continue only a little while, and after that joy is ours. The apostle teaches the same lesson to the Hebrews when he tells them, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Because of the sudden and often unexpected change of sorrows into joy, our tribulations are said to be but for a little while. Again, because our afflictions are exchanged in the end for everlasting happiness, they are regarded as but for a little while. What matters it, it though poor Lazarus suffers for ten or twenty years, if after that he is to be eternally comforted? St. Paul says, Romans 8, For I reckon that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And 2 Corinthians 4, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. And St. Peter says, 1 Peter 1, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And once more we read in the fifth chapter, But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a little while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. If, therefore, we firmly believe that we here have to undergo ills which last but a little while, we will be cheered even in sorrows. 
Hence it behooves us to trust implicitly in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, knowing that his word is true. Though misfortune and affliction overwhelm us for a little while, then will we be comforted in sorrows, even as a woman is comforted in travail by the thought that God will soon turn her pain into pleasure by the sight of the child which is born. We cannot have real joy and gladness without preceding pain and sorrow. Our reason may attempt to persuade us that such afflictions are certainly proofs of God's displeasure and indifference towards us, but we must not heed such insinuations. They are false. A woman in travail must have sorrow and anguish, else the new man cannot be born into the world. Thus God sends us afflictions that we may find a rescue from them, and then much gladness of heart. The Lord most cheeringly tells his disciples what manner of joy awaits them in a little while. He says, I will see you again. This promise was fulfilled on Easter, when he did appear unto them in a new life, glorified. Thus he appears unto us, and our hearts are glad, when we remember his death and resurrection, his victory over sin, death, and hell in our behalf, so that we through him might live evermore. This is true unalloyed and everlasting joy, which turns away all sorrow and which cannot be taken away. Let us therefore not be impatient or unbelieving when affliction comes, but let us hold fast to the comfortable assurance that though we suffer, it will be but for a little while. Christ has arisen and sitteth at the right hand of the Father to check the devil with his tribulations and to make us happy forever and forever. God grant us this blessing through his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Dr. Martin Luther's sermon on the text, John 16, verses 16 to 23, preached on Jubilate, the third Sunday after Easter. You're listening to the Luther Sermon Podcast. For more Luther sermons and more information about the podcast, please visit the Hope uh, Lutheran website of Aurora, Colorado at www.hope-aurora.org.